Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In her 2018 young adult book, A Mile Unbound, Aisha Saeed wrote a beautiful novel inspired by the real-life story of Malala Yousafzai, the heroic Pakistani activist for female education. Saeed's recent novel, Omar Rising, is another story of hope, also set in Pakistan. While Amal's was a compelling narrative about the importance of education for girls, Omar's story reveals the injustice of class discrimination in Pakistan. Author Aisha Saeed joins us later this hour. Plus, speaking of the arts, our series of local artists in their own words today features cartoon animator Chris Alvarez. First, the arts organization Black Art in America, or BIA, was created out of love for black art, black community, and black excellence. They've elevated the community of black artists since 2010 with arts advocacy, workshops, management services, and exhibitions. This year, BIA hit a major landmark with the grand opening of their new dedicated gallery space in East Point. The Baya Gallery showcases art by both renowned and emerging black artists. Founders, CEO, and visual artist Naji Dorsey joins me now via Zoom to talk about the new gallery. Naji, welcome to City Light. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Black Art in America has been providing a variety of services for artists and the arts community for 12 years now. Would you tell us a bit about its origins? Yeah, so I moved to Atlanta in 05 to pursue my art full time, but it quickly came to a realization that you know, there was a 
a challenge and a shortage of attention related to, you know, the African-American artists and the artists that I was seeing around me doing wonderful works. And in 2010, sitting around a, a table of collectors and artists in Chicago, you know, one, one evening of doing a weekend show there, I had that, that epiphany, that, that light bulb that went off and say, hey, you know, you know, as Obama said, you be the change that you're looking for. <laughs> and from that point, just solicited some friends to help assist in creating a platform to document, preserve and promote the contributions of the African-American art community. So that's how we started. Nachi, what did it mean for you to open Baia's first dedicated brick-and-mortar gallery? We've hit a, a point where, you know, we was, we was in the middle of COVID. We were 10, 11 years into the company, and I felt like we had more capacity to do more. And the next step for us would be a brick-and-mortar. You know, we feel as though we built a virtual institution focused to our culture, and uh, it, it was just a matter of, you know, gr- continuing to grow and to create a space where we could showcase the work of these talented artists, both past and present, and build a facility that facilitated community. You know, I mean, it was about a gathering space, a space where we could connect, connect with other people, and also continue to educate and elevate the works by uh, artists of color. So it means it means a lot. You know, I'm about to turn 50 in a couple months and my wife and I, we celebrate 28 years of marriage and we've been completely oh. committed. Our anniversary is August 4th. So we've been, that entire time, we've been completely committed to, you know, enjoying and living with art and eventually getting into collecting and building relationships with collectors and artists and other institutions. And so it's just the next step, but it's, it fits within the thread of who we've been for a very long time. And why did you choose the location of East Point for this gallery? Yeah, I think the location really found us. When I saw the property, it was, it, it really it really came about because we were looking to move back to Atlanta and we were having trouble finding a, uh, a residence to buy because in the middle of COVID, the prices were getting skyrocketed, you know, we're, we're, rate, we're, we're going crazy. And, but at the time, yeah, commercial had shuttered. Like, and so, you know, I thought about what Warren Buffett would say. He say, do the opposite of what everybody else is doing. And so I said, well, let me see what commercial property is out there. And I got to looking around and I ran across this great lot. I mean, three quarters of an acre. It's got its own block, 4,000 square feet gallery space. And I just saw a lot of potential. I mean, the, the building had great bones. It's 0.3 miles from Langford Parkway and three and a half miles from the airport. So I just saw a, a huge opportunity and, you know, it was in the neighborhood, but it's not quite, it's like a mix of neighborhood and businesses. So it just, you know, it seemed right. It seemed right. And it's proven to be, you know, the one thing that I really, I would say not necessarily underestimated, but really didn't understand was the impact that it would have on community because of the, not the fact that we just brought a gallery here, and not the fact that we bought, you know, a, a successful company, and but the energy that we put into it with the design and the art and the level of renovation, I mean, it's really transformed how people see this area, how people see this building and the, the amount of love and appreciation they have for what we brought to the community. So it's been, it's been really special when I see my neighbors come up 
and the pride that they have in their eyes or the bus drivers driving by blowing and waving and people <laughs> stopping saying, hey, man, we love what you did. I had no idea. Oh, that must be so gratifying. And Baez's grand opening exhibition was on the Juneteenth weekend. What was it like to celebrate the opening of this new space on such a special weekend? It was amazing. I mean, we had a lot of people in, a lot of locals, a lot of people that traveled from around the country. But when you think of the significance of the date, uh, while there was a lot of activity going on, I mean, that's, that's probably was the only drawback. Like everybody had something going on, which is great for Juneteenth. So we had to, you know, people had to navigate that. But when you think about it symbolically of the last of our ancestors finding about their freedom and yet by a Black Art in America, you know, headquartered in gallery space, being on the road on Connolly, which was a, a former enslaver, you know, in this area. And then you're like where we are today and bringing in high culture, you know, a celebration of who we are and the journey that we've made and the journey that we continue to make and the contribution we continue to make. I think it all just kind of fed into something that was just, you know, it was, it was memorable. And I don't know, it's just, I, sometimes I don't have the words, you know, we just kind of put in the work. This is what we do. This is what we love, but we see it in people's eyes when they come here. Uh, Lois, when they come here, people know that they're in a space that's uniquely different. They always talk about the energy and, you know, this sense of something sacred when they enter the space. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, I think a lot with the garden, people see it with the art, of course. I mean, that's what our core business is. But the the amount of money that we put into the money and the interest and the love, like this space has been loved on. So when they come in here and they, you know, see the garden space, it just kind of takes them to a different kind of mode, you know? Yeah, it's, it's different. I don't, I don't have the words, but it's, it's the buy a difference. Well, I think you've found words. In fact, the physical space for the buy a gallery is built in a former church, now renovated with exterior murals and the adjoining sculpture garden you mentioned. How did you prepare the building for its new chapter? You know, it's, I always say it's, it's my biggest canvas to date, you know. When you take on an endeavor like this, I had never participated with a renovation and never dealt with contractors. So fortunately and unfortunately, I had time, right? So <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and so I'm thinking through just like, you know, I got this blank canvas to work with. I knew we wanted to to open it up, you know. So and this and this building's had a, a history even beyond the last tenant to us being a storefront church. In the 30s, the original building was built and it was a general store. In the 60s, a back half was added and became a plumbing supply warehouse. And later in the 90s, it became offices and subsequently a storefront church was the last tenant. We came in and I mean when we bought the building it had eight foot drop ceiling. So you know we just knocked down a bunch of walls, opened it up a new gut, a new vision, you know, but thankfully it had just great bones. I mean, it's got a barrel vault ceiling. I mean, it's, it's the perfect space for a gallery, you know? If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is Nachi Dorsey, founder and CEO of Black Art in America. 
Baya. We've been discussing Baya's new gallery and sculpture garden in East Point. Can you tell us about some of the artists and works featured in the sculpture garden? So in the sculpture garden, we've got a work by Namdi. I'm a butcher Namdi's last name, so I'd rather, rather almost not even try. Uh, but these three women uh, entitled uh, Friends that are just relaxed, safe, and loved on each other, just kind of having a moment. And it's just like just girlfriends. And so we've got also work by Jonathan Afumu, who's another artist, but he's a younger artist. He recently graduated from SCAD. It's a tortoise and a betta fish. We've also got our signature work for the company in terms of a garden art product that we offer. It's called Garden Art for the Soul. So we've got some life-size versions of those that are works from some of my early works, as well as work by Frank Frazier, who's a noted artist, which we named one of the galleries from. Frank is about to turn 80. He's been in the industry uh, almost 60 years, and he's been a staunch advocate for younger artists, particularly. And he had a, a great impact on on myself and so many other artists. So we wanted to honor Frank with a dedicated room. So that's probably about, I want to say maybe when you count all the garden art, there's probably at least about 40 images, 40 works of art outside. We've also got a mural uh, during the Juneteenth uh, festivities. We brought in uh, Street Art Revolution, which is a group of muralists out of Miami to paint a mural. And they, uh, we've got that mural outside. We've got a 1960s GMC step band, of which I painted and collaged on myself. It's got an Atlanta sign on top. So if we call this a compound or a campus, the entire space is just, you know, overflowing with an arts experience from the garden art to the murals on both sides of the properties. We've got a 40 foot container that has a beautiful mural done by Charmaine Menefield mm. and her team. And so like, it's just, you know, an art field experience, artists everywhere. And what's inside the gallery currently? Uh, well, currently we've got our opening show. When you first walk in, you're going to be greeted by a wonderful piece by Lillian Blades entitled Atlanta Sunset. To the left, we had this one section that we call our homage to the artists that came before. And there you're going to find works going all the way back to artists of the Harlem Renaissance like uh, Richmond Barthay. And we've got a couple pieces by David Driscoll, uh, Louis Del Sartre, Ron Adams, Fred Jones, and others. And these are artists that are no longer with us. So part of our mission has always been to document, preserve, and promote and make space to educate people about the artists that came before, as well as what's happening right now in the contemporary. So we've got that section. And then you get into uh, new works by contemporary artists like Ume, and, and we got Downs, and works by Kevin Cole, and Reginald Loran and so many others. Now, we've got a nice, a beautiful section by Najjar Abdul-Musawir, who was an early mentor of mine many years ago. And so right now we've probably got about between the three galleries, maybe 80 works on exhibition and a number of works that, that are definitely museum quality. Uh, the majority of the artists that we work with, they're seasoned artists, have been in it for a long time, have significant uh, exhibition careers, many are in, in already in museum collections. I read that you and your wife, Soteria, were especially passionate about elevating Black artists, both emerging and established. So your nod to the historical importance of those 
older artist, some deceased, was very intentional. It is. Baya often encourages those who enjoy the art on display to become collectors. Why is it important for Black art to have its own strong culture of art collectors in the community, along with well-represented artists? Well, I mean, the collectors are the lifeblood, I would say, because, you know, artists need funding, they need support, and people need you know, great works of art in their homes. I mean, uh, Siri and I, we're avid collectors. We've been collecting almost the entire time that we've been married. And it's made such a difference in our quality of life to be able to go home and, and really take a moment to enjoy, reflect, and, and basically, you know, respond and have conversations around the many forms of expression that these artists have created in. And so we want that type of experience, that type of lived experience for other people. Oftentimes people talk about collecting, but I think it's, it's better experience. And so like the group that we were in Chicago with Diaspora Rhythms, that's one of the things that they did to kind of advocate and encourage people to collect. Like they would invite people into their homes to see their collection. And that makes so much of a difference. You know, artists are creating, again, they need support. And the role that we play at Baya is to kind of facilitate you know, collectors and artists finding each other. A lot of that is based on the works that we've collected ourselves. I mean, many of the artists that we have in the gallery is work that we've seen and found a lot of value with. We think the artists are making significant contributions in terms of their craft and the level and the quality of work. They're bringing something new, something fresh, and it's work that deserves to be seen. That's a role that we, uh, we, we definitely take on and we love working with collectors both emerging collectors and seasoned collectors and people's tastes change over time. And thankfully we've got a range of works and the experience to help them kind of navigate those waters. And Nachi, please tell us something about Baya's 2022 initiatives for the Atlanta community. Well, I'm proud to say that we're, Planning out our exhibition schedule, our next big show is September 3rd through October 7th, entitled Still Here, works by April Harrison and Stacey Brown. We're also adding to our programming schedule, but one of the things that's been really, really important, I think, that we've kind of grown as a company over time, and we're we're always kind of reinventing ourselves, you know, to give something new uh, to our existing audience and our growing audience, we started the Black Art in America Foundation. And within that, we're actually giving funds to artists and supporting organizations that have an interest in community-based works. And I think that that's the, that's the difference. You know, we have to find ways to get the community involved. Art is so much more than just something pretty to put on the wall. And why, you know, why that's great for those who enjoy that, there's so much more of an impact that we can have as artists, so many topical things going on in this world that we need artists to explore and investigate. Uh, and those are the kind of things that we're interested in supporting. Like we just bought, we've got a building right now, a smaller building that we bought, a container that we were, we'll be using as on-site education and a residency component for what we're going to do through the foundation. And we're also partnering with other organizations and institutions to work with them on collaborative efforts to educate and to create opportunities for artists. One initiative that is coming to an end, matter of fact, today is the last day of what was a summer arts program 
working with the East Point Housing Authority. That's going exceptionally well. We introduced a lot of young people to not only creating art, but also getting engaged within the garden space, learning about plants, learning how to cultivate, you know, learning which ones are medicinal. So I think what we're doing is pretty dynamic and, you know, we're still continuing to grow and, and to figure out how we can better be of even more service to the community of people that are interested in Black visual culture, whether it's from an education standpoint, whether it's collecting, whether it's an event space, whether it's just programming or just a getaway. So, you know, that's, that's kind of where we are right now. Najee Dorsey, founder and CEO of Black Art in America. Their new gallery and sculpture garden are now open to the public in East Point. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, author Aisha Saeed takes us to Pakistan with her young adult novel, Omar Rising. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In her 2018 young adult book, Amal Unbound, Aisha Saeed wrote a beautiful novel inspired by the real-life story of Malala Yousafzai, the heroic Pakistani activist for female education. Saeed's new novel, Omar Rising, is another story of hope, also set in Pakistan. When the author joined me via Zoom this past April, she began with a description of her protagonist, Omar. So Omar is the son of a servant. They live in the same village in Pakistan as it was the case in Amal's story. And in Amal Unbound, we know that he is living in this shed behind Amal's home. They don't have running water. They don't have electricity. And he just got accepted to a prestigious boarding school. And it's on scholarship. And that has the opportunity to change his entire destiny. And so that's where we leave off in Amal Unbound. And in Omar Rising, we see that journey to this boarding school and what it's like to be a kid on scholarship and the struggles that a child in that situation can have and how over time he begins to start feeling like a second class citizen. And so the book explores that as well as the power of collective activism to change 
unjust systems. Yes. In fact, the tagline for Omar Rising is, when the system is broken, you have to rise up. <laughs> yes. Omar is a very sweet boy. He wants to buy his mother a home. He loves astronomy and wants to study astronomy and become a great astronomer and discover more planets. He also is a great soccer player, and Amal is his best friend. So this is the same Amal whom we know from Amal Unbound, correct? Yes, yes. All right. She's super smart. She loves books and school. And while Amal's was a compelling story about the importance of female education in Pakistan, with Omar's story, we really see the injustice of class discrimination. Omar says he always knew he was poor, but it wasn't until he arrived at Ghalib Academy that he felt poor. Why did you want to examine the class system in Omar Rising? You know, I really started off just wanting to see what happened for Omar, and I felt there was no way around it that when a child is going to a school where everybody else has so much more than he does, that there are going to be differences, no matter how well-meaning the other children may be. And so I wanted to explore that. I know that even though the story takes place in Pakistan, even in the United States, there's kids that go to college on scholarship. They go to high schools at private schools on scholarship. And it's a different experience. You know, having the same experience doesn't always mean that it's an equitable situation. And so I wanted to just explore how this one boy is going to a school alongside so many other children. But even then, even taking those same classes, things are different. And a lot of times I feel like people can can lose sight of that, like, well, they're at the same school, but just because you're at the same school or in the same situation, your situations are always different because class is always an invisible thing that is there. And in fact, you engage in some nice wordplay when Omar reflects, we might be in the same classes, but we're from different classes. <laughs> yes, exactly. How does Omar's experience at Ghalib Academy illustrate the class discrimination in elite education? It's, it's not all from the students. Yeah, I think another part of this story, right, is it's not just students who look at him differently or treat him differently. It's also how the school's rules are. Um, so in Omar Rising, he is not allowed to, as a scholarship student, participate in the same activities as the other kids, um, extracurricular activities, because they think he needs more time to study. And they are also providing scholarship kids with a separate classes for English because they need more instruction. And worst of all for him, he also has to do chores, which other kids don't have to do. And they say it's a way to repay in some way the fact that they're at the school 
for free. And it was really interesting to write it because on the face, these rules to the adults and the people who put them in place, they're doing them to ostensibly help these children. You do need more time to study and we want you to be mindful of this gift you have while you're here and we'll give you some extra education. But the way that it's coming across is belittling. And so it's a little bit about how our intentions don't always equal the impact that what we're intending has on the intended population. Mm. You mentioned that this is not exclusive to Pakistan, to your examination of the class system in an elite boarding school. It wasn't an exact parallel, but I thought back on reading Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming. Oh, yes, yes. And when she wrote about arriving at Princeton and the girl who was supposed to be her roommate ended up going to a different room because that girl's mother just didn't think it was right to have her daughter sharing a room with a scholarship student and a black student at that. And I was just aghast when I read that. I mean, the Obamas are not that old. Right. And yet right. I guess some things just don't go away. I would like to think that when she became a powerful lawyer and activist and first lady that that mother really regretted her decision. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting because in a mall inbound, many students that reached out to me after reading would say, I thought this was historical fiction until I saw that there was a laptop and there was a smartphone. And similarly with Omar Rising, you know, people think, oh, this, this sort of thing doesn't happen anymore. Kids aren't looked at or scrutinized differently because they're on a scholarship. But these things are very present. Like you said, the Obamas are not that old. This wasn't that long ago that she faced that kind of prejudice. In terms of chores, I also read a biography of Dick Cavett many years ago. And he is, what, he's in his 80s now, I guess. But he was on scholarship at Yale. And he worked in the cafeteria. He had to bus tables. And I remember him writing that it would never have occurred to him to spit into anyone's food. But the thought crossed his mind. <laughs> wow. Fortunately, he didn't. But, you know, just just that level of humiliation that good students who deserve a good education are made to feel because of class differences, it's astonishing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in, in this story, there are kids that are not particularly kind to him. But I I was more interested because I think we expect that. But I was also really interested to explore the kids who are not outwardly mean or cruel intentionally, but but still say things that, you know, they might complain like, oh, my father, when he went here, he did this. So I have to do this. Whereas he doesn't have a father, Omar, and he has nobody to guide him or tell him what to take or how to maneuver through this system. And so it's not always just 
the chores or these other things that make you feel set apart. It's even even words that people don't intend that are there to make you feel that difference. Yeah, like I said, Marwan, who goes skiing in the Alps and his parents have a beach home in Indonesia. <laughs> and Omar thinks, how many homes can one person have? <laughs> right, exactly. Chapter 14 marks a turning point. We learned that the art teacher, Mr. Adil, is Omar's favorite. And on the soccer field, Omar says, I know where I belong. Soccer is home. You just need a ball. It's as simple as that. He is a gifted athlete. What unfolds when other students, as well as the coach, observe Omar on the soccer field? So I feel like on that soccer field, he feels completely equal to everybody else there. It's something that I saw myself when I would visit Pakistan, like kids playing soccer. You don't need to have an official net. You don't need to have an official certain type of, uh, you know, you just need a soccer ball. And I saw that when I was doing study abroad in Brazil, I was in Rio de Janeiro. And I remember from the airport, the drive to my apartment and just looking out and there were so many soccer fields everywhere, informal ones and, and some in better neighborhoods that were much more, you know, much fancier and had a lot more equipment. But either way, the children were playing soccer. And so I really thought about that as I was writing this story. And that was why Omer love soccer because it's an equalizing sport for him. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter where you came from. You you can either play this soccer game or you can't. And so that was that was important. On that field, nobody can judge him. And in fact, it raises his esteem among other students and the coach eyes his talent. But the scholarship students can't join clubs. Is this another form of discrimination? That that was something that I wanted to explore because to Omer and to his friends and to the coach, it, it does feel like discrimination. And it is because he is being treated differently. And yet as the story progresses, we learn that the school thinks that they are doing this so that the children who need the most support and who need to study the most because they do have a lot more to catch up on. They want to make sure they don't get distracted and that they don't fail out. And so again, intent is not always the same as impact. And so while they perhaps didn't see it as discrimination, they saw it as assistance. It, it was separating them and depriving them of the small joys that they could have being part of groups, making closer friendships and doing things that they love. In art class, Omar connects with work by a local artist, Shazel Malik. Why does her artwork immediately resonate with Omar? So Shazel Malik is an actual artist in Lahore, Pakistan, and she's the artist behind the cover for Omar Rising and Amal Unbound, and that's how I found her work and fell in love with her work. She's done so many amazing things. She's an artist and she's an activist for women's rights. 
so in this story, Omer has to do an art project and he's never taken art classes before. He's feeling very insecure. He sees lots of great artists, but nothing's really connecting. But when he sees this particular piece of art, it's a Pakistani girl in shalwar kameez on a bicycle and there's people looking at her. It's a real, it's a real art piece that Shazel has created. And he's very moved by it because he sees himself in that. He can relate to that photo. And when he finds out that this artist is not from a million years ago, she, she's here now, and she lives so close to where his school is, he feels further seen. And it gives him a little bit more confidence that maybe he can do this because now he sees that there are people that look like him that can do this. And just reflecting on the power of feeling seen. Yes, and representation. And the cover art is wonderful. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is the author Aisha Saeed. Her new young adult novel, Omar Rising, is a compelling companion to her New York Times bestseller, Amal Unbound. Omar learns life lessons with his work in the kitchen. Please tell us about Chef Schweb. <laughs> he has the opportunity to do all sorts of different chores, but he grows close with the two cooks in the back kitchen and helps them with chopping up things for breakfast, prepping things. And as time goes on, he isn't just there because he has to do chores. He's there because he cares about these cooks and he, and it's a safe space for him and the other scholarship kids. It's a place away from any judgment uh, to be back there in the kitchen. And he learns as he's there that this chef used to be a celebrity chef of sorts. He worked in Karachi, pretty far away from where the story takes place. And he was known, he had posed with celebrities in Pakistan and he left all that behind to come back to his village where his family was because he wasn't able to take his family with him to that life. And he works here now so he can have time with his family and, and have a quieter life, but a life that felt more fulfilling. And it was a chance for Omar to see that, sure, we can have these big, big dreams for ourselves, but there are also other ways that we can have a joyful, meaningful, fulfilling life as well. Chef Schweb has wonderful values, and it's a revelation for Omar and the other boys to learn that. What is Aiden's role in this story? We, oh, when we meet him, he is a nasty bully, and then he undergoes a transformation. Yes, he does. He does. He he starts off having a temper tantrum because this wasn't the school he wanted to be at. There was a much more prestigious school that he had hoped for. And so this was second best. And he just doesn't want to talk to anybody. And, you know, as the story goes on, we learn more about him and his background and why he is so distant and aloof. And it was interesting because I know I, I feel that I feel that there is always another side to children and and what makes them hurt other people, what what's hurting them. And so as I used to be a teacher, I actually taught in DeKalb County here in Atlanta. And so it was something I experienced a lot as an educator, and I wanted to bring that into the story. The headmaster, Mr. Moyes, seems unusually harsh 
Would you explain what transpires between Omar and Mr. Moyes? So Mr. Moyes is the headmaster of this school, and he has decided that he is going to teach the scholarship kids in the first year their English because that's where that's the subject that they struggle in the most. And he comes across really mean to them. He's he's always frowning, it seems. He's always pushing them. He gives them more work and they start to feel like he's out to get them. And he was inspired by my sixth grade teacher in Florida, where I grew up. And I, my sixth grade teacher was always pushing me. She was always on my case. And I felt like she was out to get me. And I always felt like when she was pulling me aside to give me extra lessons, it was, it was some sort of punishment. And it wasn't until the year went on and towards the end of the school year that I saw that she just wanted she saw something in me. She saw something in my writing and she had wanted to nurture it and grow it. And she was also protecting me because I did have bullies growing up. And so she was pulling me into her class to, to keep me safe as well. And so, you know, as an adult now, I see all of it so different. And as a child, I saw it so different. And that's where Moise came from, was from the adults and kids' life who sometimes don't realize that there's more going on than they may re- that they may see initially. Hmm. The narrative emphasizes the enormous pressure and anxiety that Omar and the other scholarship boys feel. Aisha, did you base their experience on knowledge of what goes on in an elite Pakistani school? Is Ghalib modeled after a certain school? Ghalib is completely fictional. I did look into schools that are boarding schools in Pakistan, like Etchison is a really prestigious one. It's the one that the bully actually wanted to go to. But that particular pressure, it's its inspired by the inherent pressure that I've seen in my own family and in the students that I've worked with about wanting to please people, feeling like you will be the first in your family, let's say, to go to college. You're going to be the first in your family to accomplish a certain milestone that nobody else has. And the pressure that comes with that and the responsibility that comes with that and that that feeling that you don't want to let anybody down and you don't want to let anybody know that you're scared because you know how many people are counting on you. And so I've seen the effects of that with relatives that I've, I have and, you know, and I've seen the effect with students. And so I had wanted to capture that in this story about what it's like to feel that you cannot tell anybody what you're going through and you have to be strong even when you're not feeling quite so strong. So I mentioned that Omar's favorite teacher is Mr. Adil, who does a wonderful job of guiding his students through art, a subject, and a world that didn't appeal or necessarily seem accessible to these boys before his class. Will you describe Omar's art project So Omar, in this story, he wants to be an astronomer, like you said, and he considers himself a science kid. And I've encountered that a lot growing up. Kids who say, oh, I'm an art person. I'm not a math person, or I'm not a science person, or I'm a science person. I'm not an art person. And it doesn't have to be a binary. You know, you can be both. And so that's 
part of Omer's journey in this story is to see that he's he's more than one thing. He's not just a kid who likes science. He can also be a kid who likes art and can be good at art. And his final project is inspired by an article that Shazo Malik was interviewed in. It's a real article. And she talks about the importance of being stubbornly optimistic and never giving up. And so he combines his love of science and this art project because he loves outer space. And so he chooses Pluto, who's been, as we all know, kicked out of the solar system, <laughs> which is a source of much strife in my household. Oh, Pluto so, marked down. <laughs> exactly. And so he feels that way. He feels a bit marked down. He feels like he's in this solar system with these other kids at this school. And yet he is by so many not considered to be like them. And so he uses that as a symbol of himself trying to be stubbornly optimistic and hanging in there at the school, just like Pluto's hanging in, orbiting orbiting the sun, even though they say he's not a planet anymore. Um, just like that, he sees himself as trying to hang in there and not give up, even though people are labeling him otherwise. You mentioned astronomy in your household. Please elaborate. <laughs> We we just got really into during especially during the pandemic into Neil deGrasse Tyson and watching uh, the cosmos and just lots and lots of deep dives into that and personally as a kid I grew up with Pluto as a ninth planet and so and so the kids and I we've just we've just had so many debates about it there's actually a really funny YouTube video called We Don't Talk About Pluto which is a <laughs> <laughs> which is a take on We Don't Talk About Bruno yeah. which we have watched many, many times, and I think that Omer would have loved that one. <laughs> oh, so is Neil deGrasse Tyson singing like Lin-Manuel Miranda and we don't talk about Pluto? No, 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 it's uh, it's not, but but he is mentioned in it because he is one of the people who think that Pluto should not be a planet, so. And, and to be clear, I see the rationale for Pluto not to be a planet, but on an emotional level, I have a hard time accepting that. <laughs> <laughs> I was intrigued by the number of astronomy references you make. I mean, just words for how Omar perceives things. Were you having fun with that? I was, yeah. I, you know, I, I loved seeing things through his point of view. And, you know, I feel like to make a character feel very real and lived in, they have to have specificity to them. And so Omar and his love for the solar system and planets and this dream that he has of becoming an astronomer is what's motivating him and guiding him through trying to keep at it at this school. And so he does see the world and is inspired by his challenges by thinking about that. And, and that was really fun for me. And I myself, through working on this story, learned so much about that topic that I didn't know before I began working on this story. Oh, great. Dramatic tension builds toward the end of this story. In fact, a crisis, and it's very suspenseful. In the end, there is a dramatic show of support for the scholarship students. Yes. Aisha, what has Omar learned from Shazel Malik's stubborn optimism? <laughs> I, I'd like to think that what he's learned is that 
being stubbornly optimistic means that you continue to hope even when things feel hopeless and that that hope doesn't have to rest on your shoulders alone. You can lean on people. So much magic happens for Omer. So much changes when he starts to tell people the secrets that he's kept about how scared he is and about the stakes and how easy it is for him to get kicked out of the school. Once he starts doing that, the hope continues to grow and grow and build and build. I feel like that is a theme in a lot of my stories, so I don't intentionally set out for it. When I look back at the stories I tell, I do really emphasize the importance of that, of leaning on other people and how one person may not change something, but if we can collectively work towards that same cause, we really, really have a stronger chance. Author Aisha Said, more information about her book, Omar Rising is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, our series of local artists in their own words, speaking of the arts, today featuring cartoon animator Chris Alvarez, amplifying Atlanta This is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. Hi, my name is Chris Alvarez, and I am a cartoon animator slash muralist. The type of work that I do, it's ever-evolving, as in the fact that I like to try all the things and experiment. Hopefully one day I can stick with something long enough to say this is my style and this is what I do, but as of lately, I've been doing a lot of cartoon-driven cubism, I will call it, featuring uh, strong shapes and colors. I think like most artists, I started as a kid, like to watch cartoons and draw all the time, all over the walls and any surface I could find. Uh, luckily, I never grew out of that. I went to school to study cartoon animation and that kept me drawing. Eventually, I moved on to illustration and painting murals, which has become my favorite thing to do. I think I get most of my motivation from pop culture and music. Um, I love to draw cartoons and the human figures, so I think a lot of my paintings are just a combination of that. I love Atlanta. I've been here over 20 years. It truly has become my home. I came here to study animation at the Art Institute of Atlanta. And luckily, the animation industry here is very strong. So I've been, I've been employed making cartoons for TV for over a decade now, which has been a dream come true for me, to be honest. The people, it's really what makes this city great, you know? And all my artist friends inspire me and push me to create bigger and better things. In the case of our galleries, I usually go to Free Market Gallery, Karai Creative, or AVV Gallery, though I'm also a fan of spending an afternoon at the High Museum. My favorite area to walk around and check out new murals is Cabbage Town. Uh, you can get a drink at Storia and then walk around the street with those amazing murals uh, from the Forward Warrior events, and that, that makes a pretty great day. Most of my animation work can be seen on FX or Hulu. I just finished art directing this show called Poorly Drawn Lines based on a very funny comic strip by the same name. 
My mural work can be found all over the city. Uh, some of my favorite ones will be on the Bell Line, the Atlanta Airport, Studioplex in Old Fourth War, or my latest one that I just finished at the new distillery of modern art in Chambly. Artist and animator Chris Alvarez. More information about Alvarez's work is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., Chantal Ritter from the crew of Grateful Gluttons will tell us about next weekend's Parliament of Owls Lantern Parade. Plus, we'll hear about graffiti, a library guide to aerosol art, on view at Emory's Rose Library through January 23rd. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Light's senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.